comes from the prophet Isaiah, the 66th and final chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah, the 66th chapter, we'll be reading together verses 7 through 14. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. This is God's word. Will you ask with me God's blessing and God's help upon this word? Pray with me. O Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, that you would quicken our hearts to believe this word, and that you would quicken our limbs, our hands and feet, so that we might not be hearers only, but doers as well. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. We are, by the way, accompanied today by my wife, Vicki. We sent our Stetson Jr. off uh, just last weekend, and uh, so we're empty nesters of a sort again, and so I'm sure you will extend to her a warm welcome as you do to me each time I'm with you. Uh, we are in the midst of a series uh, of metaphors for the church that uh, Scripture gives us figures of speech to describe who we are as God's people, and not just uh, for interest's sake, but so that we might live According to these metaphors, uh, the church is the bride of Christ, therefore we are to love the church the way Christ loves her. Uh, The church is the body of Christ, uh, fit together, and so we are to uh, be one people serving and loving one another with the gifts he has given us. We are a city of God. That is, we have a citizenship that is not of this world, and we, we have a citizenship that is in the city whose foundations will not be shaken. And today, we look at the church as the mother of believers, the mother of believers. And we want to explore and learn what is it about the church as our mother that would cause us to live and relate in unique ways to uh, one another. Now, uh, now that we have the uh, eclipse out of the way, uh, we will, uh, many of us at least, are now thinking about October 31st which will be the 500th anniversary 
of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And in doing so, he uh, challenged the practices of uh, indulgences and the corruption that he saw in Rome when he visited there, and uh, particularly uh, the, the need for us to merit or earn or deserve in some way our salvation with God. Uh, this is going to be a big event for people like Presbyterians, Lutherans, and other Protestants. And uh, it started a, a, a social and cultural movement that we still uh, feel the impact of today. And um, Luther's action was just really the lighting of a fuse of what became this broader movement. And it is ca- characterized by certain slogans, if you will. Every movement needs a slogan. And in the uh, Protestant Reformation, the slogans were what we know as the solas, uh, in the Latin, only. For example, sola gratia, that is only by God's grace that we are made one with him. Sola fide, it is only by faith that we can receive the gift of Christ's righteousness to be made one with God. So the scriptura, that the, the scriptures are the supreme and infallible rule of faith and practice. Uh, solus Christus, that Christ alone provides the righteousness necessary to be reconciled to God. And soli Deo Gloria, that is all things are to be done and lived both within our spiritual lives but also in all of our lives to the glory of God. These are the so-called five solas. But as in every relationship and situation, it is sometimes even more important, or at least often as important, to hear to not hear what's not being said. While uh, Protestants celebrate the solas, it is easy to uh, overlook the fact that there were many things they did not challenge or question, but rather assumed and shared in common with the Roman Catholic Church. And one, in a fundamental respect, was that the normal way God saves people for himself and to himself is through his church. And uh, I wrote a few years ago a provocative suggestion, an article. You can find it out there on the Internet, just like everything else in our lives. An article entitled, A Sixth Sola, Sola Ecclesia, The Church Alone. Now, I'm not going to try to explain all that I said at that time. I'll leave it to you if you want to explore that more. But I want us this morning to look at this passage of Scripture as God's provision of the church to us as our mother so that we will appreciate what a third century bishop once said, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. You cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. Because this was universally believed, not only by the Roman Catholic Church, but by the Protestant Reformers, even as they challenged and stood against beliefs and practices of the Church of Rome. This is a radical-sounding thing to some of you, because you thought the whole Protestant Reformation was about only Jesus saves, and that is true. 
But the point here is that Jesus saves through his church. It's still Jesus who saves. But the normal way that people come to know God is by coming to and being part of what Paul later calls the church, which is our mother in Galatians uh, chapter 6. One of the uh, cardinals, one of Luther's chief uh, debaters, if you will, or opponents in the Reformation, a, a cardinal Cajetan, is said to have warned what was going to happen because of the Reformation. He is, said to, he is uh, said to have warned, Luther is casting off one pope for a thousand popes. And by that he meant by casting off the single unique inerrant authority of the pope in Rome that people would be their own popes. And I'm afraid that Cardinal Cajetan vastly underestimated how true this would become of Protestants. The church often plays a very minimal, if any, role in many people who claim to be Christians. But the Westminster Confession of the Protestant Presbyterian tradition says this, The visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, right away, there are many questions that will come to the average evangelical or Protestant's mind. And there are many good questions that can be asked. But the word ordinary is key here. God's ordinary plan, just like God's ordinary plan for raising children is in a family with a mother and a father, which does not mean if somebody is raised in a single parent family, they are somehow less important. They just lose many advantages. So also, it's God's plan that Christians be raised in a spiritual family with God as father and the church as mother. And rather than try to make the theological case for this this morning, I'll leave that to your elders to pick up the mess in the coming week. I'll just want to say two things. One is I'm not saying anything unique or strange or idiosyncratic to the Reformed faith. But secondly, what I want to say is, if we look at how God has provided the church as our mother, we will find that even if we still have objections, they will not be strongly held or voiced. Because to see what it means to have the people of God as our spiritual mother would cause us to not desire anything less because to desire differently is to desire less. As I said, Paul in Galatians 4 says this, the Jerusalem above, meaning the the church of Jesus Christ, is free and she is our mother. And I would like us to look at these verses in Isaiah chapter 66 to see how God provides an earthly mother for his children. And God having done so, that we therefore must strive for our mutual well-being. That is, our own well-being because the church is our mother, but also the well-being of the church because she is our mother. Because God provides an earthly mother for his children, as God's children, we must strive 
for our mutual well-being. First of all, I'd like us to see how these verses from Isaiah call us with respect to our spiritual mother to depend upon God's promise to depend upon God's promise. If you look with me at verses 7 and 9, you'll see this. We are uh, reading here of what God said would happen for Jerusalem and Mount Zion. Jerusalem is the city of David that, where the temple was built on Mount Zion within the city. Uh, the book of Isaiah begins by saying that because of God's, because of the rebellion of God's people, God was going to allow His people to be taken away into captivity and His temple and His city to be plundered. It was God's chastisement of His people for being unfaithful to Him. And Isaiah wrote this, uh, centuries before it happened. But Isaiah doesn't leave it there. Isaiah goes on to talk about how the restoration will come. That how God's people would one day be brought back from exile and that the city of God, Jerusalem, and the mountain of God, Mount Zion, would be restored. And so here, Isaiah is saying, count on the promises of God to restore your spiritual mother. Depend upon God's promise. Let's look at verses 7 and 9. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. It's referring here to uh, when God moves to restore Jerusalem, it's going to happen like that. It's going to happen suddenly. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Would uh, It would be a strange thing indeed for a nation simply to pop up out of nowhere, but when God is going to restore His people, it's going to happen suddenly. Why? Because it's going to happen according to God's divine purposes and in fulfillment of God's divine promises. Because their exile, the exile of God's people, was according to God's purposes and plan as well. There's a phrase from Hosea, the prophet, that I think sums it up so well. Uh, Hosea uh, takes a, a wife for himself who is a prostitute as a parable for the people of God, and, 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 and it's, it's because God has commanded him to do it, and it's a, it's a parable for how Israel had become unfaithful to the Lord. And this, this one sentence that expresses it so well says this, God says, I will take her into the wilderness, and there I will speak kindly to her. See, this is what God would do by taking his people into exile. He was taking them away from the, the basis of their false security, their nationalistic pride, their boasting about who they were, he was going to take them into the wilderness so that he could reason with them once again. And this is how God works in our lives too. You know, there are, there are things in, uh, which are, are obstacles for us for, for knowing God, for, for, for humbly living before God, by, for doing His will. And God will, in His grace, at times remove those things or remove us from those things so that He can reason with us. It's like taking the, to- the toy out of the child's hand so the child can listen. After the tears have been quelled, then the parent can be heard. And so this is what was going to happen, but the restoration was going to happen according to God's will as well. Quickly and suddenly, for as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her her children. There was not going to be a nine-month pregnancy in this restoration. 
It would be like the Passover. You know, the reason they didn't put leaven in the Passover bread was because of the suddenness of God's salvation. You can go back and read that in Exodus 12 and 13. Don't bother putting yeast in the bread because when I save, I will save and I will do it fast. And so now we look back upon this and we see God did that. God brought back a nation that no longer exists. The nation of Israel no longer existed after the exile. Jews were scattered all over the world. And that could have been the end of the story of Judaism and of the Old Testament and of the nation of Israel. But God did not leave things there because he had promised to do otherwise. He brought them back from the east and the west and the north and the south and restored them to the place where his name had dwelled. What was a nation in one place became not a nation in, scattered in countless places and once again became one nation, which eventually today is becoming one nation throughout the nations. Because now the people of God are no longer one people in one place, but a people of every tribe and tongue and, and nation throughout the world. Because as we learned last week, Hebrews 12 tells us that we have come to Zion. We have come to the city of God. In Christ, we have been made the new Israel. See, God didn't simply, in his gospel plan, decide to throw life vests throughout the world, but rather to bring us onto the ship. This, by the way, has been a a metaphor for the Church throughout the ages, the ark of God. In the days of Noah, there were not those people who said, well, I believe in my my personal relationship with God will get me through the flood. But rather, it was only those who were on the ark who were saved. And so through through the centuries, the uh, theologians and preachers have used this as an image of the church, that it is in the ark of the church where we are brought to God and brought to salvation. And Jesus promised us, didn't he? I will build my church. He said he would redeem a bridegroom without spot or blemish. He said one day the bridegroom will appear adorned and ready for her husband, Revelation 21. Now this is a challenge for us. And this is the reason I make so much of it. Depending upon God's promise to build His church is not an easy act of faith. Because the church does a lot to undermine our confidence in her. But this is no less true for the people who read these words from Isaiah. They had to believe in faith that God would rebuild his city. And the point here is, he has already rebuilt it and is rebuilding it. Not in a temple in Jerusalem, but in a resurrected Son of God, John chapter 2, raised on the third day, Jesus. And by grafting us into him, 1 Peter 2, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, spiritual stones being built up together into a house for God. Because the rejected cornerstone has become the foundation, the cornerstone of this new temple. Around the world today, people are worshiping God at this very hour who just merely half a generation ago did not know Christ. 
And even as the church in America seems to continue to decline in a lethargy and, and, uh, and not depend upon the Word of God, sola scriptura, and teach other ways to God besides the grace of God through faith in Christ, yet the overall picture is a very encouraging one. If the majority, if the language of the new heaven and earth is a majority language, what do you think it's going to be? Well, if we want it to be English, we better get busy. Because <laughs> I think if it happened today, it, it was either, it's either going to be Spanish or Mandarin. Somebody will translate for us. Or else uh, we'll have the Spirit like at Pentecost, so we all hear in our own languages. So we put our hope in the church because God has promised to build it. And most specifically, he has promised to build it in Jesus. The church is where it's at. It's God's plan A, it's God's plan B, and it's God's plan Z. I remember being in China about two and a half years ago and talking to missionaries who were sharing the gospel on university campuses. And this was a ministry that was not famous for being churchly. Uh, they like to raise money in churches, but they don't necessarily like to send people to churches because they are trying to build their campus ministries. And we talked about for five days, where do you want to see your college students in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years? Where do you want to see them? Besides the 1% that might join the staff of your ministry. And even just uh, this summer, I received an email from one of them that was, uh, who was lamenting the fact that those, Christ, those students who had become Christians three, four, five years ago were now walking away from the faith because they had never been engrafted into the church. See, as parachurch workers, they did not have a high enough priority on believing the promises of God that Jesus would build his church. But not only should we um, uh, depend upon God's promises when it comes to the church as our mother, here in verses 10 and 11 we see we should delight in her nourishment. We should delight in her nourishment. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for you all who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. You know, God doesn't restore his people just so he can say he did it. He restores his people because the Jerusalem of the Old Testament that's now has achieved its fulfillment in the Jewish Gentile church of Jesus Christ. This is the mother of believers. And what do mothers do? Mothers feed their children. When my mom went away twice, probably in the 15 years I was growing up, and my dad had been a short order cook at one time early in their marriage, but we loved seeing mom come back. And we probably like had, we probably took her right from the front door, took suitcase out of her hand, and took her right to the kitchen to get to work. Because what do mothers do? 
Mothers feed their children. A skinny child is a discredit to this kind of mother. And so the restoration of Jerusalem was for God's Old Testament people to be a cause for rejoicing, for being glad for those who loved her, and a cause of rejoicing for those who mourned over her. Psalm 137 is a psalm written in exile. It's the saddest psalm in the whole Bible. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? There we hung up our harps and wept. The Babylonians were mocking the Israelites. Sing us one of your Jerusalem songs. Where's Jerusalem now? Where's your God? And the psalmist said in Psalm 137, If I forget you, O Jerusalem... Let my right hand forget its skill. Because they knew that God had given them Jerusalem as their mother. And so now the prospect of restoration is to bring joy and delight because those who delighted in her are also those who mourned her captivity. But her restoration would mean that she would once again provide mother's milk to her people. The child will be restored to the mother because the mother is being restored to God. And while Jeremiah said, Rachel weeps for her children, referring to the exile, that's quoted in Matthew 2, by the way, and it said, Rachel refused to be comforted. Here, Rachel can be comforted because she is the mother of Jacob, who she will once again nurse. Someone once said that breastfeeding is the perfect baby food. It's always the right temperature. It's in nice bottles. And the cat can't get it. Uh, Must have been a man who said that. I don't know. But there are things that nursing... And and a a mother who, who can't nurse is is typically deeply disappointed because she knows these things... But a nursing mother gives warmth through contact with the body and also security by the embrace of the child. And food is just a third part of the formula. But how does this measure up to our attitude toward the church or the people that we know? You know, we often as Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, have sterilized church into being a formula. Many people regard church as a place where you go to get certain things. It's like a vending machine. And it's, it's like a vending machine where you touch the LED screen to choose your family of sodas and then your uh, sugar or non-sugar version and then your cherry vanilla or whatever else you... And it's just simply a dispensing machine to give us what we need when we need it. In a certain sense, we have objectified the church the way pornographers objectify. Because people look for a church that has a maidenly form rather than a matronly form. But it's a matronly form that feeds us and makes us healthy. Like good consumers, this is particularly true of American evangelical Christians, like good consumers, we want spiritual nourishment packaged for distribution rather than having to crawl up into our mother's arms and be held. Now, 
when we stop to think about it, and, and I say this, observing something of a turning of the generations, uh, when we stop to think about it, every child, no matter how old in their heart of hearts, wishes at some time they could place their head in their mother's lap again. You know, no matter how old you are, how long your mother has been dead, from time to time you may, as many do, think, I wish I could crawl in her lap again. Because the lap of a mother is a safe and a warm and affirming and a nurturing place. And as that metaphor continues in verse 12, we haven't looked at it yet, but he said, you shall be carried upon her hip. You see, I see uh, younger adults, like many of my students, who have been raised by parents who had no interest in organized religion, just in spirituality. I see these younger adults saying, we want a mother. They've been raised in single-parent homes, and they realize that they need two spiritual parents, God as their father, the church as their mother. I remember my grandmother, Hulse Apple was her full name, Grandma Apple, we called her. And um, she was a modest, hard-shell Baptist woman whose uh, high, um, high-top black leather shoes met her socks, and uh, there wasn't any observable skin um, below her, uh, her, her chin. Um, and uh, she, I don't know all of her petticoat uh, constructs, but I know that with, with whatever was under and her dress and her always apron, when she came home from going somewhere, the first thing she did was put on her apron and never without it, I knew that was a, that was a great lap to be in. And here we see God has provided in his church just that kind of a lap, a, a nourishing, consoling, secure place to be held. And particularly, we in the Reformed tradition uh, see these things in what we call the means of grace. That um, our mothers don't feed us whatever we want and ask for, but rather they feed us what is most healthful to us, which is also delightful. The word, the psalmist says, your word is sweeter than honey, and it's more precious than silver and it is life itself. The Word, both when we read it, when we study it, and when we hear it taught and proclaimed, uh, and the sacraments of the church. To be baptized and to be given a birth certificate. It shows us our parentage. So even when we are far away from home, we still know who our mother and father are. And it testifies to us Daily, our baptism is uh, to testify to us daily of how we are to live up to the family name. And the Lord's Supper, where we commune with Christ, spiritually present. And when we commune with Christ, we therefore commune with one another as his body. Food is funny. Um, 
I've told you before, I have a friend from southern Georgia who talks about his grandmother's cooking. And I'm supposed to ask him when he talks about it, I say, Am I, I'm supposed to say, Andy, is it good? And he always says, I'll tell you how good it is. If you put a plate of that food on your head, your tongue will flap out your eyeballs trying to get to it. <laughs> how many, for how many of you is it true that the things perhaps you ate by necessity or by ethnicity in your home growing up, which are considered not very uh, fine dining, are those very same things you want most when you want comfort food. My son wouldn't touch a plate of biscuits and gravy. We should have had his DNA tested to see if he was really mine until he went away to college. And now all he wants when he comes home is a plate of biscuits and gravy. He wants what his home fed him. Listen to how Psalm 36 describes this. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. We are spiritually, we're spiritual wanderers in our appetites. But the church bids us always to come home and eat what is healthful to us so that we can not just be fed and nourished, but take delight in it. Psalm 87, verse 7, the psalm on which glorious things of thee are spoken is based. It ends, Psalm 87, is singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. That is to say, that place has all my favorites. You know, we get up and we think, well, we go to Jimmy Hula's for lunch today or Five Guys or is it... You know, we sit and have these conversations about because we have our favorite foods at our favorite places. The church as our mother has all of our favorite foods if our appetites delight in God's provision. So we are not only to... Um, to uh, depend upon God's promises when it comes to His church, delight in her nourishment. The last thing I would like us to see is we are to desire her reformation. Verses 12 through 14. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nourish, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. What Isaiah is saying here, there's something in the future when this restoration is going to happen. And we can even stand and see it where we are today. Isaiah said, the kings of the earth will bring tribute to the mountain of the Lord. Kings from Egypt and Cush will bring myrrh and gold. The infant Jesus, even while he lay in the manger, was receiving the tribute of nations. But that's just the beginning. Because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And the bride of Christ will become the glory of the world because of her bridegroom. Hosea's wife of harlotry will become the beautiful bride. And we are to desire her reformation, anticipate what God is doing here, so that our hearts will rejoice because the hand of the Lord will be known 
to his servants. It's a very brief word on this. When you hear the word reformation, it was not about a set of peculiar doctrines. It was not about a social or political or theological movement per se. The word reformation had reference to something, the reformation of the church. The Protestant reformers sought to reform the church according to the word of God. And as I alluded to early, this is a challenging task. Because the church varies in her error, in her faithfulness, in her purity over the ages and in different places. We cannot delight in the church in such a way that uh, we don't desire her reformation. Uh, And the church, sadly, has often become simply what what people wanted from it. Uh, And what do we want from the church that is not what God wants from the church? Do we want the church to be biblical? Uh, There is no other word which God has given us upon which we may rely unfailingly because it is from the unfailing faithful God. And so when you think about the church, we we must think about sola scriptura, that is, a church that believes in the authority of Scripture so that its milk is healthy and pure and untainted. Do we sometimes want a church that is more of a resume builder rather than the motley crew of those who have been brought in from the highways and byways, so the weakest ones which are necessary uh, for the strengthening of the body just as the strongest ones are, as we learn from 1 Corinthians 12. The vineyard is not cleared of weeds. More importantly, all of the chicks of the mother hen have not been gathered yet from the nations. Do we want a church that confirms our earthly citizenship that makes us feel good about our race or our politics or or the country we live in? Or do we want a church that reflects the cosmic lordship of Christ over all nations? We have to work for reformation because of how important this mother is. We cannot simply walk away from her as many people do when they're disappointed, discouraged, or hurt by the church. And we cannot simply blindly and deftly accept her when she errs and is unfaithful. Loving the church is work. And often the work is against becoming cynical because sometimes progress seems three steps forward, two steps back, or sometimes just two steps forward and three steps back. But because of the promises of God, we know that loving the church of God, loving our mother in Christ, is not in vain. It is not in vain because she possesses for us the delights of God our Father, but also she is the future of the world, as one day the glorious bride of Christ will shine as we are told to anticipate when the nations shall come, the glory of the nations come to her as the prophet predicted. So, we are to depend upon God's promises regarding our mother, the church of Jesus Christ. 
We are to delight in God's provisions to us through His church, and we are to uh, desire her conformity to the biblical pattern of the church as God would have her be. There's a story prior to the Reformation. It happens, uh, as best I can determine, it happened to Thomas Aquinas, who is about 400 years before Luther. Thomas, the great uh, theologian, uh, entered the court of Pope Innocent II, and apparently it was on a counting day (laughs) when all the treasures of the Vatican were being inventoried. And when Innocent saw Thomas enter, picking up from a line in the book of Acts from experience of Peter, he says to Thomas, no longer can Peter say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas, reflecting upon this accomplishment to being from being the despised and the forsaken of the world to being the wealth of the world, as the world counts wealth, Thomas replied, True, Holy Father, and no longer can Peter say, Rise and walk. Our earthly accomplishments are usually ones which compromise our heavenly glory. But yet God has given us his church as our mother so that we might strive for her growth as well as seek our own growth within her. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the city of God, as your divine, gracious provision for us, so that we would not think less of her than we ought, so that we would not uh, take less from her than we ought, And so that we will not be satisfied until she uh, reflects your glory uh, outwardly uh, with the righteousness of Christ, which is hers in heaven. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.